You can go ahead and turn back to the book of Job. What I'd like to do is actually read, I timed myself earlier today, and I realized I'm wasting four and a half minutes of my time, but I want to read Job 1 and 2 together, just so that we can familiarize ourselves with how this entire account actually went down. So, if you would, bear with me. I'm going to read Job chapters 1 and 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was great of all the earth, people on the, in, of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older, oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, and took them, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another, and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself to the Lord God. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. If God is good and powerful, then why does evil exist? If God is omnibenevolent, meaning he is all good, and he is omnipotent, meaning he is all powerful, then why does evil exist? If God is good, does he not want evil to be done away with? And if he is all-powerful, does he not have the power to remove evil from this world? It's a good question. Yet there is one attribute of God, his omnisapience, which is his all-wise, his wisdom, which gets us close to an answer to this question, one that I, quite frankly, do not have a very satisfying answer to. And not to burst your bubble, but the scriptures do not give us a very full, comprehensive, complete answer to if God is good and all-powerful, then why does evil exist? And yet in the story of Job, we see a man who never actually gets that answer. Yet we see a man who says at the end of the book, I have heard of you, but now I, after suffering, now I see you with my own eyes. This evening, I'd like to try to, in the time that we have left, look at 10 lessons from the book of Job. Now, I, as I was, I just, kept with, I just kept coming up with more and more lessons. So this, there could be less, there could be more. I don't think 10 is the correct number, but we're going to run out of time before we run out of lessons. So uh, I'm going to get as far as I'll go with the lessons that we go through. Um, so I, this is not a uh, look at any one particular passage, but I just want to look at the entire story, and hopefully these lessons will be a help to you as they have been a help to me. 
So here we go. Lesson number one. Actually, before we do that, how many of you are doing a chronological Bible reading plan for this year? How many of you, when you got to like Genesis 7 or 8, they stopped you and took you to Job? Okay, overflow room? Yep. Okay, a couple here. So this is good. You guys probably already have some questions as to why it seems as though God is trying to prove Satan wrong and Job pulls the short end of the stick at the end of this wage or this, uh, this bet that Satan brings to God. Okay? So this is good. All right, lesson number one. From the two chapters that we just read, here's lesson number one. All suffering falls within the sweep of God's sovereignty. All suffering falls within the sweep of God's sovereignty. It is hard to read the first two chapters of Job and deny that even suffering falls under God's sovereignty. We, as readers of the story, as Job does not, we see that Job's afflictions owes everything to an exchange between God and Satan. Satan himself even recognizes that he is on a tether, having to ask God permission to afflict Job. Satan, in this light, was simply a pawn in God's purposes. However, more than Satan's recognition of this truth, even Job recognizes and never supposes that his suffering comes anywhere else than from the sovereign hand of God. Job responds to his wife's foolish suggestion and says in chapter 1, Slipping my. Shall we not take, shall we not accept good from the Lord and also evil? He sees the suffering that he went through from the very hand of God. Job's struggle throughout the entire book is with God himself. We read Job's first lament in chapter 3. He says in verse 23 that he feels hedged in, that God himself is the one who has hedged him in. Oh, I know what it is. It was in 2.10, not chapter 1. From the very outset of the book, Job makes this statement, should we accept only good from God and not trouble? And it's from this first lesson that we see that God is ultimately the driving force behind everything that happens, even suffering. Okay, that was a quicker one. Lesson number two. The emphasis on Job's character highlights the fact that there is such a thing as innocent suffering, or I should say collateral suffering. If we look at Job 1.1, a man who the scriptures say was blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away evil, and God confirms this reality many times throughout chapters 1 and 2, verses 5 and 8. Then in chapter 2, verse 3, and then at the end of all the suffering, chapter 42, verse 7, God says, after all of it, Job was right, and you counseling friends, you spoke wrong of me. Now, before we unpack lesson 2, that there is such a thing as innocent suffering, let's all agree that we could undoubtedly come up with indirect connections from sin to suffering, all throughout the Old Testament, right? Um, even 
at the end of Genesis 3 and moving on to the early chapters of Genesis, we know that all suffering is ultimately a result of what? Sin. Now, what I mean to make clear in this second lesson that there is such a thing as innocent suffering, and in the book of Job specifically, is this. There is some suffering in this world that is not directly related to any sin. There is some suffering in this fallen world that is not attributable directly to any immediate personal sin. I'll remind you of John chapter 9, the blind man, the Pharisees, or whatever religious teacher was there at the time, asked Jesus, did this man sin or did his parents sin? Why, why is this man blind? We find out, we actually know, we get an answer as to why he suffered. It was to bring glory to God, and Jesus healed that man. Well, in the world of wisdom that Job was living in, this concept of suffering not being a result of sin was, in fact, unthinkable. I don't have time to unpack this, but Job was most likely an Edomite, and so were his friends. If you were from Edom, your reputation was you lived in the city of wisdom. How they understood the world to work was they thought everything was filtered through what was called the retribution principle. Okay? Let me uh, very quickly unpack that. The retribution principle meant that if there was sin, there would be suffering. So someone was suffering, it was directly related to their sin. Vice versa, if there was blessing, it was directly related to the fact that someone was obedient. They feared God. So we have the retribution principle, suffering equals sin, and the other big word that I fumble a lot is the remunerative principle, which is blessing equals obedience. Okay, so Job's friends only thought in those categories. They had no loose ends when it came to people suffering. It was only ever a result of someone's sin. So the retribution principle, we need to understand that that ruled the day when we read the story of Job. The the justice system of the day that ruled the minds of Job's friends was obedience equals blessing, sin equals suffering. Now, before we deny that outright, we do have to agree and admit that Deuteronomy, the book of Kings, and the book of Proverbs all speak of this retribution principle. This is a biblical principle. However, we must be careful, and the book of Job helps us with this, not to view the relationship between suffering and retribution for sin in such a simplistic, cause and effect, mathematically rigid perspective. And I think you and I intuitively know this to be true. Excuse this explicit illustration, okay? But when a father abuses his six-year-old daughter in some sort of sexual way, in what way is this daughter responsible? Of course, in an ultimate sense, her suffering is the result of sin, albeit someone else's sin. But this is exactly what makes her an innocent victim or sufferer. By no means is she innocent on the absolute scale before God, but what sin has a six-year-old girl committed that would allow us to step back and say, yep, she deserved that because of some sin in her life. There is none. She is an innocent sufferer. And in light of this reality, when we have the opportunity, here's a little bit of a devotional lesson, okay? When we have the opportunity to grieve with those who suffer in our congregation, 
please be cautious not to draw a correlation of one's suffering to their sin, like Job's friends did. And while it could be true in some cases, we would be wrong to pronounce this judgment because pronouncements like this ultimately usurp God. He is the only one who is truly omniscient and knows all things and can give a reason why you are specifically suffering when you do. Lesson number three. Those wisest of the day are still prone to error, so be careful who you listen to. Those wisest of the day are still prone to error, so be careful who you listen to. While time does not allow me to defend this, and I've already sort of hinted at it, Job and his three friends were Edomite. Edom was the people group that descended from Esau. In ancient Near Eastern times, Edom was known for their wisdom, and Job's three friends were most likely the wisest individuals in Edom at this time. Eliphaz, I can, I'll go out on a limb and say I'm more confident of Eliphaz than the other two. But these guys traveled together. I mean, they were probably buddies. Now... Why is this funny, or why is this ironic? Well, this is ironic because those who were known to have the answers concerning the very principles of justice that ruled the world, they completely misunderstood the one who, in fact, rules the world. More than that, this is eye-opening for us. When we think about the ones who we go to for wisdom, who we confide in in our deepest pain and suffering, who, who we look to for the hardest questions of life, whether that be a doctor, whether that be a psychiatrist, whether that be a psychologist. Let me caution us not to be so quick to run to those who are in our culture and society who are held in high regard and said to have these fixes to the problems. Let me encourage you to run to those who are actually commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, Romans 12. And those who are commanded to restore the one who is overcome by temptations and burdens and sufferings of life. That is the local church. Lesson number four. We're moving pretty quickly here, so we're, I think we're doing all right. Lesson number four. This, this one I, I didn't really like writing out because this is the one that hits home for me. No amount of preparation will galvanize the sufferer for the actual experience of personal suffering. No amount of preparation will galvanize the sufferer for the actual experience of personal suffering. What is a galvanize? It's, it's a protective coat or a covering. Okay? There is no way that we could prepare ourselves to go through suffering before we actually walk through it ourselves. In other words, no matter how much you may think you are ready to walk through suffering, the actual experience of suffering is an entirely different matter. Thinking through the theology of suffering, resolving in advance how you might respond, however honorable this exercise might be, it can never completely prepare you for the shock of suffering. Job's response to his situation bears this reality. Look at Job 3, verse 25. Job chapter 3, verse 25. He says, For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. 
I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. The very thing that Job feared the most had came and knocked on his door. There is no preparation that will galvanize the sufferer for an actual experience of personal suffering. Anybody ever done a polar plunge before? All right, the new thing is uh, uh, getting this little tub and filling it with really cold water, like an ice bath. And You know this, Mike? Yeah. Okay. Does Dan do it? Yeah. yeah, I thought so. So you go out a minute, two minutes in the morning, and it's supposed to help your general health. You get in, like, freezing cold water in your bathing suit, and yeah, okay. The, excuse the silliness of this, but to try to prepare yourself for suffering is like trying to prepare yourself to get into this ice bath. You can brace yourself for the plunge all day, but when you actually jump in, the shock of your system snatches your breath away, does it not? And this is what we see Job, lost for words, lost for breath, in chapter 3, verse 25. Let me encourage us that as we live longer and seek to bear one another's burdens, let me caution us all against assuming that sufferers must grieve in the same way. Those who are grieving will experience affliction and its aftermath in various ways. For those of us as godly comforters, though, we must weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Lesson number five. Lesson number five. In the midst of suffering, there is space for lament and pointed prayers to God that express uncertainty and frustration. If you read through the book of Job probably a couple weeks ago now, if you're on the chronological reading plan, you, you saw this. You probably thought to yourself, whoa, that's pretty strong. Lesson number five, though. In the midst of suffering, there is space for lament and pointed prayers to God that express uncertainty and frustration. God does not blame us if in the midst of suffering we frankly vent our despair and confess our loss of hope, our, lam our lamentations about life itself. I'm sure that you have come across all patterns in the scriptures. I preached a couple months ago on Psalm 3. That's a lament. Every third psalm is actually a psalm of lament. Sure, we need to be careful not to say the wrong thing in the midst of grieving and misery like Job's wife did, right? Job's wife always like gets a bad rap, but remember, like she lost her children too. So she was experiencing this just much. But could we not view the level that Job, of suffering that Job was going through and really uh, write his wife off like that was actually a bad idea? Like, are, are you still concerned about your integrity? Like, you could just curse God and end this thing. Like, I don't blame her. But within certain boundaries, it is far better to be frank about our grief, candid about our despair, honest with our questions, than to suppress them and put on the public front like everything is okay. There's a desire in nominal Christianity to do this. There's a desire to clean up our grief and to always display this stiff upper lip. That there's this understanding that Christians always have to suck it up and act okay because, bless God, they're people of hope 
and a future in heaven. But if we quickly listen to Job's lament, really quickly, I'm going to actually argue that they're actually expressions of faith rather than of doubt. Job's language of complaint is strong, and I'll even admit uncomfortable throughout the entire book. In six, I'll just list off like six of these. In chapter six, verse four, Job suggests that God is firing poisonous arrows at him. In seven, verse 20, Job accuses God of making Job his target. In chapter nine, God is multiplying Job's wounds without a cause. In chapter 10, Job states that God is oppressing and despising Job. In chapter 13, Job says that God is hiding his face from him and counting him as an enemy. And in chapter 16, Job accuses God of having a plot, having plotted a full-scale attack on Job. Now, for sake of we're just rapid-fire these lessons that we're learning, what is most interesting is the truth that is actually laying behind these uncomfortable accusations against God. What is Job doing? Job is assuming that God is in absolute control of what is happening in his world. Who's firing the arrows? God is. Who's plotting a scale of war against him? God is. And this big view, and I would admit, correct view of God, is behind these, uh, this accusatory language. And while this might not be church talk, something that we would probably all cringe if we saw our brother and sister Christ speaking this way, nevertheless, this is God talk. This is a man who is wrestling deeply with suffering. And while Job's words of protest to God sit most awkwardly against his strong testimony of godliness and blamelessness at the beginning of the book, the striking feature about Job's lament is that even in the midst of dark times, feeling forsaken by God, he still laments and complains to God. He goes to him. So throughout the book, while Job's friends just sit back and speculate about God, here, Job, this is what I think is wrong. Why don't you just like confess a bunch of sins you're not actually guilty of, and then your suffering will go away. No, Job actually talks to God. He runs to him. He grapples with the goodness and love of God being directly opposed to his experience right now. So Job actually becomes quite an example of faith that cannot be shaken as he continues to lament and cry out and complain to God even in the midst of God's apparent silence. Now, Job does get rebuked by God and he does repent and confess at the end, so I don't want to just say we need to be like Job in lament, okay? So um, I'll say this, the key is not allowing bitterness to take root in our hearts so that we begin to point the finger at God but rather to be honest with God as we wrestle through the experience of his strange providences that often occur in suffering. Lesson number six. While we almost never can prevent suffering in this life, we are held responsible for how we respond to that suffering. I'll say it again. I know these are long, sorry for you, you note-takers. While we almost never can prevent suffering in this life, we are held responsible for how we respond to that suffering. 
we read in our scripture reading, Job 42, 7 through 9. The Lord kind of calls everybody in at the end and tells everybody their faults at the end there. and What they said was good, what they said was wrong. Okay, notice, after God finally responds to Job in chapters 38 through 41, he doesn't just forget about every word that Job's friends or even Job ever said. It's not as though God thought, well, I proved Satan wrong, mission accomplished, that's that. No, he calls back the words and actions of every party involved in Job's suffering, even those who gave him advice. This should wake us up to the reality that we are responsible for how we respond to every experience of suffering in our lives or to every every person or individual around us who goes through suffering and we have a hand in giving advice to them. We want to be careful how we handle such things because we will, in fact, be responsible for what we said or how we handled things before the Lord one day. Lesson number seven. Lesson number seven. For God's children, for God's children, specifically there, okay? for God's children, suffering leads to greater faith rather than a loss of faith. For God's children, suffering leads to greater faith rather than a loss of faith. Remember that God actually says that Job speaks speaks rightly of him, even with those uncomfortable accusations that we flip through there. I I love, uh, I have a long quote here by D.A. Carson, but he makes this helpful statement about Job's suffering leading to greater faith. Listen, listen to this quote. At no point does Job abandon faith in God. At no point does he follow his wife's advice to curse God. It is precisely because he knows God to be there and to be loving and just that he has such a hard time understanding such injustice. Job wrestles with God. He is indignant with God. He challenges God to come before him and provide some answers, but all his struggles are the struggles of a believer. This is why Job can be praised by God himself for saying the right things. At least he spoke within the right framework. I thought that was a a helpful quote. So true. We could flip through the middle portions of Job and the dialogue between his, his buddies and we probably could point out some, some foolish things that Job said and that he was rebuked for at the end of the book. But at no point does he simply curse God and turn his back on him. Even Job's demand of God to present himself to God and give him an answer for while he is suffering is a cry of a believer trying to seek what in the world God is doing in his life. Lesson number eight. I think we're going to make it. For God's children, suffering may be used by God as a vehicle for the transformation of the sufferer. For God's children, suffering may be used by God as a vehicle for the transformation of the sufferer. Now, Scripture does, in fact, I don't want to say the Scripture never talks about why, why evil happens to people, okay? Suffering, or excuse me, Scripture does give many reasons for suffering, but it is difficult, often impossible, even for us who have the complete 
biblical revelation in front of us to understand specific experience of sorrow and trouble and give a reason why to them. When is our suffering, when is the suffering of believers God's discipline for misbehavior? We see that occur, Psalm 39, Jeremiah 30, Hebrews 12, Revelation 3. But we should be hesitant to just apply that one reason to every leg of suffering because Scripture talks about another one. When is suffering a training for spiritual maturity? Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 1, 2 Timothy 2, 4, and then James 1. Can't apply it to every situation, but it's there. It is a reason. And when is suffering an opportunity to glorify God by one's faith? 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, Hebrews 11. And I already shared the one from John chapter 9. His suffering was to bring glory to God. So let me remind us, Job is never actually supplied the rationale for why God allowed his suffering. And in fact, one of the emphasis of the Lord's speech at the end of the book is that the believer will never understand many things simply because he is not God. Um, I just, this is, if I was Job, it wouldn't be comical, but it is comical. So go to Job chapter 38. And I was, hopefully this says it as funny as it did. Okay, yeah, sort of. All right, uh, Job 38. This is when God, or the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind, and he says this. Job 38, 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, who is obscuring how I do things without knowing how I do things. And then, here's the comical part. Verse 3. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. So God's saying, out of all those things that you've just said, here we go. I'm going to give you an opportunity. So get ready. Be a man. Insert the song from uh, Mulan. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um. So while we as believers may never understand the reasons for suffering because we are not God, Job is personally transformed through the process of suffering. Job has grown personally through the process of suffering in a way that completely changes his response to the Lord by the end of the book. At the end of the book, it's this humble, submissive faith that has replaced his agonizing protests against God of his innocence. Job has not only experienced suffering, but he has experienced an encounter with the very creator of all things. Really quickly here, lesson nine. While we might not be protected from innocent suffering, we will always be protected from purposeless suffering. While we might not be protected from innocent suffering, we will always be protected from purposeless suffering. One of the things that you and I as God's children can be confident that we will never experience is purposeless suffering. Suffering for no reason. Romans 8, 28 through 30, familiar passage, says all things work together for the good of those who love God. Verse 29, those whom God has predestined, he is conforming them to the image of his son. And in verse 30, to actually reach glorification. 
these verses in Romans 8, we can't give justice to them right now, but they give us confidence that every one of our life's experiences are working together for our own good and God's ultimate glory. Those whom God predestined, that is in verse 28, the ones who entire, in the entirety of their life experience, including suffering, that is used to work them and to conform them to the image of Christ's image, okay, the image of Christ, they will also be the ones who are glorified. So suffering in our life actually in some way confirms that we are headed for glorification. I didn't get to nicely unpack that, but that's, that's the thought. Okay? Now, much of how this plays out remains, a, remains veiled in mystery. But the book of Job illustrates that believers must go forward in faith that God is working for their ultimate good in every situation. Um, now, if you'll allow me, really quickly, just because we got to nine, we got to get ten, okay? Um, so, sorry for the kids in the back. When we encounter suffering. So when suffering, a correct knowledge of God does not necessitate complete knowledge of him. But it most certainly necessitates faith in him when complete knowledge cannot be had. That was a mouthful, something you need to see in front of you to understand. Okay? When suffering, a correct knowledge of God does not necessitate complete knowledge of him. But it most certainly necessitates faith in him when that complete knowledge cannot be had. So to unpack this, I would like to try to understand precisely why God says that his servant Job spoke of him what was right, but the three friends are rebuked. Um, try to say this quickly. Um, while Job comes out and and says such strong accusations to God, calling him in basically to a, a court order saying, God, I need you to tell me what's going on here, why I'm suffering, I have done nothing wrong. Job has been genuinely searching for truth in that moment. He has not given into the advice of his wife to curse God. He has not given into the advice of his friends to just confess sin that he hasn't even committed just to escape suffering. Job never denies God. He never denies his sovereignty. He never denies his justice. He never turns his back on God. So while the story ends with this question, why does a good and all-powerful God allow innocent suffering, while that is never answered, Job never gives up the faith. In contrast to that, look at Job's three friends. Now, if we generously look at the responses, if you were to go in and look at the book of Job, and, and look at these three men's advice, we could say that they were seeking to actually defend the justice of God and say, it can't be anything wrong on God's part, so Job must have done something wrong. Otherwise, why would he be suffering in such a way? However, in seeking to defend God, they end up simplifying God and testing Job to confess sins that he wasn't even guilty of so that his suffering might just end. Now, realize this. If Job would have succumbed to this temptation, it would have meant that Job actually cared more about prosperity than his integrity and the Lord himself. And Satan's accusation would have proven to be true. So the counsel of these friends would have actually led Job away from God. 
And Job would have been reduced to one more person interested in seeking God merely for personal gain. Were Job's friends, could we have said that they had a wrong view of God's sovereignty and justice? They actually never said anything that was wrong of God. It's just they allowed, they put God in a box and said God only ever works in this mathematical rigid uh, structure of suffering equaling sin, blessing equaling obedience. So at the end of the day, the ultimate test of our knowledge of God is not passed by having all the right answers to the questions, but rather correct knowledge of God becomes evident when it is faced with suffering but does not turn from God. So, as we close, the book of Job does not unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to innocent people. But it does invite us to do this, to trust in God's wisdom when we do encounter suffering rather than try to figure out the reasons for it. Because here's what happens. When we search for reasons, we tend to either simplify God like Job's friends did, or we accuse God like Job did. The book is honestly inviting us to bring our pain and our grief to God and to trust that God actually cares and that he knows what he is doing. The God who put Job through this ringer is also the God who is said that in respect to his own people, he will not let them be tempted beyond what they can bear. But when they are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that they can endure it, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now, while I really don't think that God should have betted with Satan on me, <laughs> uh, that was a joke, God was not betting, okay? He knew exactly that Job was the right man for the, the job to prove Satan wrong, okay? There was no doubt in God's mind whether he would prove Satan wrong or not. So here's the question that I want to leave us with. <clears throat> when we suffer, there will oftentimes be mystery in the suffering. But my question for you is, will there also be faith? When we suffer, there will oftentimes be mystery. There will be questions that are not answered. But in that tension, in that mystery, will there also be faith? Or will we make the mistake of Job's friends to either simplify God or make the mistake of Job and accuse him? Let's pray. Father, it is easy to scratch our heads and think, why in the world would this book be included in your canon? But Father, I by no means have exhausted the depth of truth and uh, implications for our lives here in the book of Job. I pray that just one of these might be encouraging or some food for thought for our congregation as they either walk through suffering or try to help those who are walking through suffering. Father, help us never to think of ourselves in such a high place to have you figured out 
or call you into a court order and ask for an answer. Father, we were not there at creation. We do not control the wind or the waves. We do not, we cannot tame the wildest beasts in your world. And if that's how you responded to Job and that was enough for him, that that must be enough for us as well. Help us that although suffering might be around the corner with all of its mystery and unanswered questions, let us cling to our faith in you. You are an all-good God, an all-powerful God, and yet let us not forget that you are an all-wise God working suffering and goodness and pain and evil all out for the good of your people and the glory of yourself. For it's in Christ's name that we pray.